Listeners, there's honestly nothing I love more than a good writing retreat, especially one that comes with solid coaching and the chance to meet other writers who are working on similar projects. This fall, three Author Accelerator certified book coaches are offering what sounds like a dream retreat if what you're working on is telling your own story. It's called Mainly Memoir, and it's a retreat for women writers in historic Biddeford, Maine. Mainly Memoir will provide three days in the gorgeous Maine woods in September, with one-on-one coaching both before, during, and after the retreat. It is the perfect opportunity to give yourself the gift of time and focus so that you can make real progress on your memoir this year. Mainly Memoir will be held from September 21st through 24th, 2023. A scholarship is available for a memoirist from a community that has been traditionally underrepresented in publishing. Learn more at MainlyMemoir.com, and as you've probably guessed, Mainly is spelled M-A-I-N-E-L-Y. So that's Maine the State, MainlyMemoir.com. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. I'm KJ Delantonia, and this is Hashtag Am Writing, the weekly podcast about writing all the things. It's feeling rather painful to me this week, so excuse me. Um, writing, short things, long things. I'd say yay on the short things, but they're not any easier. Pitches, proposals, also not easy. Okay, so this is the podcast about sitting down and getting some work done. And I am KJ Delantonia. I'll be your only host today. I am the author of some books, The Chicken Sisters, In Her Boots, How to Be a Happier Parent, and the forthcoming, depending on when you're listening to this, Playing the Witch Card. And I am super excited to be here today talking to Virginia Soul Smith. We have mentioned her a zillion schmillion times on the podcast. Virginia has multiple books. The most recent slash the one coming soon immediately is called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. I will tell you again at the end of this podcast, but man, if you are parenting a child, you should buy that book. There you go. Doesn't matter if your child is fat or skinny or squishy or bulgy (laughs) or green um, or anything. Every child in our age of diet culture is experiencing fat talk and you should buy this book and I am going to buy this book, but that's not really what we're (laughs) going to talk about today. So Virginia's over there giggling. Say hi so that people can hear you. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. This is such a treat. We're going to have a really good time talking about Substack and email newsletters and the the starting thereof. And the the reason that I really wanted to talk to Virginia, other than that she is brilliant and fun and entertaining, is that Virginia has this massively successful substack with a title, which has nothing to do with, or very little, I I guess, tangentially, (laughs) arguably, um, to do with her topic. And also, I don't, if you had asked me before you did this, if a substack on this would work, I would have been like, I don't know. No. So Virginia's substack is called Burnt Toast. 
right? Does it have a sub? Do, do we have subtitles for our subtitles? You have taglines, and I've been messing around with mine lately, but um, I generally call it the newsletter about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. But, you know, that's always sort of a work in progress part. I love this and I love how massively successful it has been and the community that you have built around it in part because I would not have guessed that community existed. Would you? Um, I had some suspicions based on, you know, feedback I got on articles I wrote for, you know, I was a freelance writer for many other places before I went all in on Substack, which we could of course talk about. And the main gig I had before switching my attention to Substack was writing a monthly column for the New York Times parenting section on kids and food and body image. So I knew from the response that those pieces got that people were interested, but I did not expect it to become a community community in the way that it has. And that has been a really lovely and really wonderful surprise of doing this. Yeah, you get a lot of uh, responses to your call outs, you have a lot of really, I mean, you, you have a lot of conversation going on. I love that. How long? Okay. I believe that all of us ye oldie writers with books uh, out in the world or coming out into the world have accepted that we probably need our own newsletters as a way to reach our readers, whether there are 12 of them or 12,000 of them or 12 million of them. Um, and, you know, we have talked a lot on the podcast about various and sundry ways to do this. And we had Liz Lenz on to talk about the substacking piece mm-hmm. of it um, not too long ago. And I guess actually more like two years ago. Did you start on Substack? I don't think I started so. on Tiny Letter um, mm-hmm. back when I thought of my newsletter as really just a way of you know, here are some links to some articles I wrote and here's a book event and, you know, like just sort of strict promotion type of Mm -hmm. newsletter. I did that on Tiny Letter for a while. And then Tiny Letter caps you out at like 500 people or something. So once it was like 501 people, I was like, oh, I guess we have to move somewhere. And my research assistant at the time was like, you should go to Substack because there's a way of monetizing your newsletter there. And I was like, oh, well, that's, I'm not going to do that. I know that seems complicated. But if, you know, if you say this is what the kids are doing, I guess we'll go to Substack. Um, this is the cool place to have a newsletter. And so I carried on there for a few years. I mean, I want to say I started the Tiny Letter before my first book came out in 2018. And so then I was just kind of like plugging away doing Substack newsletters like once a month or so. Um, when I remembered, you know, in that haphazard way, we try to do all the marketing things um, until sometime in 20, let me get my dates right. Let me think. Um, okay. Like probably like late 2020 um, was when I started thinking about sort of seeing, you know, Liz is a friend and I'd seen her success with it and I'd seen some other writers success with it. I was like, oh, and how were your numbers about that? Okay. So this is, this is the kind of the fun part of the story. So yeah, I decided I wanted to start looking into doing paid subscriptions really in January, 2021, which was when my column at the times ended. And I had a couple other anchor freelance clients, you know, do the thing that anchor freelance clients do from time to time where you're Mm -hmm. like, okay, I got to, you know, pivot and find some new gigs. 
And I was feeling just sort of like burned out and over it and was like, okay, what if we did Substack instead? And I also had my book contract for the for Fat Talk. So I was starting work on that, which meant I had the first paycheck of the advance and I had some runway and I could say to my husband like, hey, I'm going to not make money for a little bit <laughs> and try to get this newsletter going because we've got the advance paycheck. So it was somewhat doable. Um, at that point in January 2021, we had 700 people on the list. And I turned on, so I immediately, one thing I immediately did was start publishing weekly. I think at that Mm -hmm. point I had been bi-weekly and just increasing frequency helped pick up because, you know, you have that many more pieces of content to share. I also shifted very deliberately from like the promotion stuff is still there, but it'll be like a footnote at the bottom or a quick thing at the top and started really thinking about like I'm writing pieces for the newsletter, which was a shift. Right. Um, So now it's like content people are sharing, articles, we're starting conversations, all of that. Also started connecting with other Substack people and got mentioned on a few bigger Substacks. Emily Oster had me on Parent Data, and Anne Helen Peterson interviewed me on Culture Study. And both of those, Substack is definitely a universe with a lot of cross-pollination. So both of those brought me a big jump in subscribers. So by June of 2021, I was at about 4,500 from 700. So that was wow. pretty good growth right there. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to turn on paid subscriptions, see what happens, you know, see where this goes. And so I turned on paid subscriptions in June of 2021. And now we are not quite, well, when you and I are talking, it is April 2023. So we're not mm-hmm. quite two years later. And the total list is 28,000. And around 10 to 12% of those are paid folks. So it is now my full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. So it Just did Just wow. It did grow. <laughs> yeah. And it's still growing, which is pretty cool. So one reason that I like, so I went to Substack for my newsletter, which is free. And at the moment, I think will always be free because... Because my monetization, personal monetization money model is just right. is different. Um, so, but I shifted over there in part because Substack is free until you monetize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do use it for, you know, for the podcast. And some of y'all are paid subscribers and we are extremely grateful around that. So I was already there. Um, and I moved over there, just sort of in part because they have they had some a lot of interesting things were going on. A lot of people were moving over there. They're um, starting trying to start different ways to have conversations and the comments in the bottom. And I wanted to do more of that. It hasn't really um, come to pass for my email yet, but I'm working on it. But the thing I have found is that Substack has far more natural discoverability yeah. than anything else you can do right now. Yeah, the recommendations, once they added that, that was a huge driver. You recommend other newsletters, they recommend you. And then every time someone subscribes to a newsletter, it immediately says, do you want to subscribe to these other three newsletters that that person likes? And so you're just kind of constantly, they have a lot of smart tools in place to mm-hmm help you be findable and help you connect with other other newsletters, which has been really powerful. I mean, they just launched Notes, which is kind of their attempt at Twitter. We'll see. That one's a real work in progress, I would yeah. say. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've dived, dived, divin, dove, <laughs> dove. <laughs> um, in there and, and sort of promptly 
I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm like, I, just don't. I, I would rather just not be doing Twitter. I don't really want another one. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I did love Twitter back in the yeah, day, yeah. but I'm just not <laughs> sure I'm here for yeah. round too. But I did say to myself, okay, you know, especially right now when I'm also promoting a book and I'm sort of, you know, by necessity showing up on the socials more strategically than I sometimes do. I was like, why don't I do notes, which I like, I know Twitter does not drive me Substack readers. It does not. Twitter and Instagram do not fuel my newsletter very well. Right. Because Mm -hmm. they're both built to keep people in the apps. So I was like, well, if I'm going to do one, it makes sense to do the one that's in the universe of the thing that's actually paying my income. So there's that. Um, But I do think they're still figuring out how to make it totally work. So, yeah. So let's talk about building a community around. So the community of Burnt Toast and the newsletter of Burnt Toast is built around the idea of um, freeing yourself from diet culture. Fair enough? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, one way or another, sort of, no matter who you are and how you fit into the world of diet culture, whether it's as a parent or as a as a human or, you know, someone with a history of eating disorders, someone with just, any whoever you are, you're, our culture is diet culture. And you want to help people think differently about it. Yeah. Definitely. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. So... Your first book was not that. No, it was sort of the starting point of it all. I mean, yeah. it was an exploration of our cultural relationship with food. And Let's under- say the title. I didn't say the title. Oh, sorry. Of the first- it's called yeah. The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. And, and I- you came to that because you, one of your children had a was born with a really challenging eating situation. And yes. you wrote a big, huge piece about it in the New York Times Magazine, which yes. is how we first connected. Yes, um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I actually wanted the subtitle of The Eating Instinct to be Diet Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. But at that point, my editors and my publisher were like, no one really knows what diet culture is. Let's just keep it food culture. Like they, you know, so, and I think that just shows how, I mean, certainly at least to someone who's on this beat, I feel like the awareness has really shifted. I'm sure there's folks listening who are like, wait, what is diet culture? Which is fair. Um, But I think in general, there's been like a sort of sea change towards more awareness of the idea of diet culture, of the ideas of anti-fat bias and fat phobia. And so I was starting to explore those ideas in the eating instinct, but wasn't all the way there yet. And then the response I got to that book, the kind of pieces, so the eating instinct is very broad. It starts with my personal story, helping my daughter learn to eat again after a severe pediatric feeding disorder where she was dependent on a feeding tube for two years. But then it explores a lot of different stories of people who have complicated relationships with food. And it's making the larger point that diet culture is showing up in all these unexpected places, that it was showing up in my relationship with my daughter around food, which you really wouldn't have thought it would be, that it shows up in, you know, all these kind of different arenas in low-income families and sort of elite upper-middle-class families, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't telling people what to do about it. It was kind of exploring a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And the pieces of the book that people really zeroed in on were – okay, but what do I do if my kid doesn't eat vegetables? But what do I do if my doctor says my child's in a big body and they need to lose weight? Like, those were the questions I started to get. And I realized that, you know, parents today are really struggling because those of us who grew up millennials and Gen X in the sort of 80s and 70s, 80s, 90s diet culture, 
you know, it was a rough time. It was a rough time to have a potty, um, giving a, given a lot of intense messages about it. And we know we want to do things differently with our kids, but we don't really know what. And a lot of folks are really stuck in this place of, I want my kid to love their body. I don't want them to have an eating disorder, but I also don't want them to be fat because that seems bad too. And like, how do I navigate through this? And so I realized I needed to start more actively exploring the anti-fat bias piece of it and helping people understand that, you know, we can't have that kind of contingency. We can't say you get to love your body if you have the right kind of body. We have to explode that idea. I'm just intrigued by, you know, whether people found you and how you found them. Um, For the newsletter? Yeah, for for the newsletter and, and really in general. I mean, the question of how we find our readers is you know and i i mean it's 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 huge it's sort yeah. of the ultimate yes. question but when it comes to writing nonfiction around a like a niche topic yeah. it is it is niche yeah. it is niche it's not and yet it is yeah yeah like totally the i the question of sort of yeah how you find the people to come and follow you um I think is the one that our listeners are going to want answered. I have a sneaking suspicion the answer's not going to be super helpful. (laughs) Well, I do think, I mean, I think in some ways it's not because it was things like being Anne Helen Peters' newsletter. She has Mm -hmm. like an absolutely enormous list. And so then a bunch of people will follow you. You know, of course, like getting those high profile hits is always helpful. But I do think it maybe helps that this is an issue that matters a lot to me personally, that I am Mm -hmm. navigating in my own parenting and personal life, as well as thinking about professionally as a journalist. So there's that, you know, personal connection to it, which I think is always important, whatever your topic is. And I think it means that I have a really concrete sense of what are the problems we are trying to solve here. And I think a lot of my training in service journalism, you know, a lot of my background was in women's magazines where I was mostly Mm -hmm. writing diet stories that are in many ways the opposite of what I do today. But a through line of really good women's magazines was always service journalism, right? It's always what does the reader need to know? Why do they need to know it? What are they going to do? What's the takeaway for them with this story? How, How will this improve their lives in some way? And I think I'm applying a lot of that same training to this topic now, of like, oh, people really want to know what do I say to my mom when she makes a comment about my kid's body? What do I say to my friend who won't stop talking about intermittent fasting? And like, to be clear, you could apply this to any niche topic you're interested in. You don't have to be interested in diet culture the way I am. But mm-hmm. I think, well, yeah, I mean, that's, having, that's the point. Yeah, that's having why I wanted to have this conversation of what are the immediate problems that my readers are trying to solve. That's what gets people to then read the piece and immediately forward it to 10 friends or, um, you know, put it on their Twitter or whatever. And one thing that's been interesting when I look at what's driving people to the newsletter, like what are my main sources? Mm -hmm. My top source is always direct, which means stuff like people are texting this to their girlfriend or people are sending this, like it's people are coming directly to it, not Mm. just like it's. It's the Substack universe we talked about. That's a big driver. 
But it's not Instagram. It's not Twitter. It's people like having one-on-one conversations with each other or sending it to their group chat or their mom So group. somebody says, you yeah. should look up And Virginia sending the Saul link. Smith. And then all these people are like yeah. on their phones clicking this link that they've just texted to their group chat and coming over to see it. And so it's right. a very like grassroots kitchen table way to kind of build a list, you know, but it's, but I think there's that immediacy. It sounds like you think very consciously about giving people um, useful, shareable content around your topic. Yes. Did you start doing that, like, sort of from day one, the minute you, well, from, from January 21, I guess, yeah. from, from when you decided to take this into Substack and, and make it something different? Well, and some of it was, I was trying to think about what will be the content that I can write quickly, like if I'm going to do a weekly newsletter, mm-hmm. and then it expanded to there's a weekly essay, and there's a weekly podcast episode. So if I'm producing that much content every week, that's a really different type of story than when I used to spend like three months reporting out an investigative feature for someone, mm-hmm. you know, like that's a different that has to be sort of the quicker to turn around thing. I mean, there are some stories that I've done on the newsletter that that take longer to report and I sort of have them on the back burner and I'm chipping away at them. And then it's like, okay, this one's ready to run. And then you're usually hi you're I, I see you because I'm a regular listener and reader. You are usually um, telling people those are coming. Yes. yes. <laughs> like, I'm working on this thing. I yes. know you guys want my take on Ozempic. Right, right, right. Um, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking working about on it. it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, I love that. Which is another way of building the community and being in conversation with them, for sure. Because they do. They email and are like, are you going to respond to this? Thing? You know, Gwyneth Feltro said this. Quick, quick, we need your take. And it's like, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I'll have a few of those working in the background But I also knew I needed things that I could write quickly, that I could report with like one or two sources, like quick email reporting kind of things, if I'm going to be putting content out every week. And so answering reader questions became like a really clear way to do that. And I was getting pretty early on, you know, I let Mm -hmm. people know I would do this. There's like a official Ask Virginia column every month, but I also, a lot of the essay ideas come from readers sending me stuff. And there's just like no shortage of those questions. So that, yeah, that kind of, I think, was a little bit just me trying to manage the workload, but it also meant I realized that, oh, what people want is this, like, sort of clear cut, this is a good way to handle this situation that I am actively navigating. You know, the school is weighing kids for BMI screenings. What do I do about it? That kind of, like, very nuts and bolts stuff um, that I think is sometimes harder to figure out. So, yeah. So do you think, so I'm, I'm thinking about sort of your topic and your books. And the first book was more informative and less service. Yes. I the second right. book, which I haven't read yet, but I will as soon as I can get my hot little hands <laughs> on it. Um, it. But from everything I've heard from you, I think you've gone in a more service direction. Yeah. There's... Gonna, there's still a lot of narrative. Every chapter has a lot of narrative because that's well, what they I, need a story. Yeah, and I, it's just what I love. I love doing narrative. Um, and there's you know, and it's still, but I think the second book is both more prescriptive, especially like there's a final chapter called "How to Have the Fat Talk," where I really like break down a lot of because I just knew that was what people were looking for. Um, but it's also more. I mean, it's more confident, honestly. It's more Mm -hmm. clear-cut in the argument I'm making. I'm no longer just, like, 
musing around with these ideas. I'm saying pretty clearly, like, this is a problem I've identified and this is what we need to do differently as a culture. And I think, so I think it's also a more sophisticated argument, um, which is now makes me feel sad about my first book. And I love my first book. I, I love your first book. Um, I didn't, I hope you're not taking, I just. No, no, no. I, but, but it is interesting, like, looking at, like, how they kind of flow together. Um, well, and I, I'm wondering yeah. if you had to really, we talk a lot on the podcast about owning your expertise, mm-hmm. and I feel like you had to own your status as an expert here, yes. um, both to do this book and also to start the Substack. Do you see yourself as as having owned it sort of over the first months of the Substack, or were you able to sort of rock into the Substack feeling fairly confident. I think I was there before I started the Substack. I think for me, it really was launching the first book. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, not so much the experience of writing the first book. I was still really exploring the questions. But once I started talking about the book that I had written, I discovered my expert voice and realized, oh, I actually did start to answer these questions. I actually do, you know, and I can see I have my arms around this topic now. And so that process helped me start to shift. You know, I was more in journalist question-asking mode when I was in the beginning of that work. And then through the process of the first book, shifted more into, yes, expert voice or authority on this topic. And so then that led to things like doing the Times column, where it was reported, but with my expertise and with my voice. And then, yeah, when it came time to do the Substack and to do the second book, I was much clearer of like, this is this is my lane. This is, you know, where I can sort of own this territory. But that is a, it is a tricky transition. And again, I think another thing, like being a casualty of women's magazines, individual writers are not expert voices there. Like the editor in chief mm. was the expert voice. The brand is the voice. And so- right you don't learn those skills even when you're doing feature writing for those kinds of places. So that was something. Right. Yeah. You're coming at it as a, you're, you're the, you're the stand in for the reader. Exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, that transition has happened over the last five years for me. Um, but I do think it's important for Substack. Um, I think there's an interesting thing and, you know, there's lots of different models for a successful Substack, but the ones that I love the most and read the most and the way I'm seeing Burnt Toast doing, you know, how it's doing well, I do think readers, there's a little bit of the parasocial relationship where mm-hmm. readers do want you to sort of be in an expert role. They want to get to know you personally and feel like they have kind of a personal connection to you. I mean, it's a similar vibe with like, you know, your favorite podcaster, like how mm-hmm. you, you know, they're in your ears and you feel like you know yeah. them. And there's definitely that that going on as well, which that was probably a little trickier for me to get comfortable with in some ways. I was like, wait, am I an influencer? What what am I doing? You know, Um, and that's not to be critical of influencers. That's a valid career choice. It just wasn't the one I thought I was choosing. Um, So that's been interesting to explore and to realize. But the community really started to build as I got more comfortable in that space, like being developing that part of my voice. And do you see the people that you reach with your, I mean, this is almost a dumb question because yes, the people that you reach with the Substack are the people who are going to be interested in this book. I mean, you oh, have yeah. really, yes, like, you really, yeah. Really, I mean, um, I call it the book you've that declared your toast. lane and you've sat down in the middle of it. <laughs> I no, I call Fat Talk the book that Burnt Toast built, and that is 
I 100% true. I mean, I had the book deal before I decided to go full in on the Substack, mm-hmm. but I was then writing and reporting the book the whole time I was building the Substack. So there was a lot of like when I was looking for sources, I would throw the call out there as well as, you know, pursuing other places that you go for sources. But like, why not tap into this pool of readers who are all interested in these issues, you know? Um, so there was a lot of that, or I would throw up another thing I do is a Friday thread where I just post a question and let the readers have a conversation about it, which... So how did those, did you, did those start as fairly successful or did they start, They, um, they had small. to grow. Yeah, they started yeah. small. It was, Substack pushed me to do them. They were like, oh, they're really good for building community. And I was like, no, it will be so awkward. No one will talk. I'll feel <laughs> weird. Um... But I think I did one or two for the whole list first as like a free, and then I made it a paid subscriber benefit. That's another whole thing we could get into, like what you keep free and what you pay well. So, but I had a few free ones where everyone participated that kind of like helped warm us up, I think. Mm-hmm. And I still find it's hit or miss. Like some prompts, if I say like, what are you reading? Recommend a book. There will be like 200, 300 comments. Like everyone wants to talk about what they're reading, which is great. But if I say like, how is your relationship with exercise or something that's like a little more nuanced and like unpacky? Mm-hmm. I'll get like 40 people who want to post like five paragraph responses and really mm-hmm. have a deep conversation, mm-hmm. but there might only be like 30 comments on that thread. And so then you have to sort of think like, well, is it that I need volume of comments or look, there's like a really rich conversation happening that I'm hosting between 20 people or 50 people. And that's pretty amazing, you know? So that's been kind of an interesting thing to play around with with the Friday threads to see the different, how different questions spark or, you know, and some like kind of fall flat and some really take off and I didn't expect it. But I, you know, I also use them for book research. So when there was a, an aspect of the book I was thinking about or, you know, curious and wanted to sort of start my research, I would throw it out to the group and just see what resonated, what questions they had about that topic, you know, so I would kind of know, well, what is the reader going to be wanting out of this chapter? And that was super valuable. I mean, that was like, almost like focus testing your book as you were writing it. It's pretty cool. What are some other things you tried within this Substack to either, um, I guess, well, right now we're talking about reaching, we're talking about creating community and, and, and talking to the, to your existing readers. So what are some other things you tried in that vein? One thing I tried that did not work, but I may revisit it at some point, was I tried doing a book club where we would read. I mean, there's so many great books in the anti-diet and fat liberation space. And I thought, oh, well, people will want to read and discuss. Um, and like that'll be a great way to sort of have more conversation and community building Um, And we did one, we read School of Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan, and that one was really great, and people participated a lot. And then we did Angela Garbus Essential Labor, and it was like, nope. And that's not a criticism of Angela. She'd been on the podcast. It's one of my most popular episodes. Her work is phenomenal. But I then afterwards was like, guys, how come no one wanted to do the book club? And it just, I think like a thread book club discussion felt hard. I think people were like, it feels like homework to have to read the book. I don't know. You know, it was just like not quite the right format. And Mm -hmm. some people said, oh, I'd love it better if we did it as a Zoom and it was a live discussion. So that's something I'm like, maybe down the line we would do. But um, yeah, but that was one that like didn't land. But I'm not sad I tried it because, you know, I think a lot of this is experimenting with different formats. And the other thing I play around with a lot is 
what to pay well and what to make free, I do really want Burnt Toast to be a very accessible place because I do, you know, there's a social justice component to this work and I don't want to be privileging information about how to prevent eating disorders. That feels wrong. Um, So I keep, you know, the vast majority of the essays are free and that feels really important. And I also always offer comp subscriptions, you know, no questions asked. If you want to be, you know, in the community, you can just email for a comp. Great. And people take me up on that, which is lovely. Um, lovely. But also this is my income and I pay my research assistant and my audio engineer. And, you know, there are costs involved in running this operation. So we need paywalls and figuring out that right balance is very, is sort of like a perpetual puzzle of, you know, the general substack advice is make your best content free because that's bringing in the readers. And then once they're in, they will want to invest in you and that, you know, and they'll just want to support your work. And it's less about giving them lots of concrete perks or lots of extra things. And that has mostly proven to be true for me. Um, you know, a lot of the paid folks, like, I'll check in, I'll do a reader survey, like, what kind of stuff do you want? And they're like, oh, we don't really care. We just want to, we just like the mission and we want to be a part of it. You don't have to give us a lot of extras, which is lovely. Um, but there's also the thing of, like, if you can come up, you know, so my most successful paywall conversion post was an Ask Virginia column last March where the reader question was, what I like, I totally get this. I support fat people, but I just don't want to be fat. And what if I just don't want to be fat? And I paywalled the answer and it converted like 200 people in a day because I think everyone has that. Because that is, that is, that is the, the question. question. Everyone has For the question. For many, many, yes, many. totally. Yeah, no, it just, it just is. And so yeah. we're always like the joke, Corinne, my research and my assistant works on Burnt Toast with me. Our running joke is like, when will we find the next question like that? Like, what is the, but what I just don't want to be fat question for this month? Because we've never replicated, like I've had posts convert a lot, but that was like my, you know, when you look at my stats, there's like a big spike in March of <laughs> last year. Um, when well, that you post just ran. did, but what if I just don't want my kid to be fat i know and it didn't it didn't didn't quite as well it did well Mm. but it didn't do quite as well and i thought that was gonna maybe be the one i know so it's so interesting like there's definitely like a lightning in a bottle thing um yeah you just don't know you just don't know but but that's the kind of constant like what will bring you in you know over the paywall um but also how much can i make sure it's super accessible and yeah so it's interesting to figure that i think that's where i do a lot of experimenting um just yeah and how about in terms of so that was a converter what do you find works to find new readers because i think discoverability is Mm. um is a huge question for all of us and you know the thing that brings me for example the most new uh substack or uh, instagram followers or subs every is you know writing another book Mm -hmm. that's kind of slow yeah, it's hard to pull that. Also, off it has every to month. be a good bit poop, yeah. that, that people really like. Right? Yeah, yeah. it's not. It's not fast. So, yeah. You know, what else you got? Um, I think some of the pieces that have really tapped into what turned out to be something of a generation-wide source of angst. Like, I had a piece, "The Grandparents Are Not Okay," talking about diet culture among boomers and why, mm-hmm. like, our mothers and our grandmothers are such sources of stress around this. And I kind of knew that would do well because every time I interview someone about their relationship with food, they talk about their mother. So I knew that that was a big thing. 
but it like really did well. <laughs> um, and so I was like, oh, really, people need to figure out what's going on with their moms. Okay. Um, so that that really like went a little viral and brought in a lot of new readers. And similarly, I wrote a piece about, um, it was called Please Stop Romanticizing Your Lunchbox. And it was in defense of school lunches and how they mm-hmm. are such important public service programs that we should be supporting. And that when super privileged, nice white parents like myself make the cute rainbow bento box lunchboxes and won't let our kids buy school lunch, we're sort of doing this underserved, you know, where we devalue the programs, they don't get as much funding, and then the food's not as good. And it's this whole vicious circle. Anyway, it's a controversial one. So I will let people read it before they email me their feelings. Um, people are really, I mean, you know, as a former parenting, yeah, writer, yeah, you people know, are really interested in uh, yeah. school lunches, both, school lunches, you know, a, they love to hate them. Yep. They want other people to have them. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So that one really tapped into that vein of like rage and feelings. It brought in a lot of folks. Um, So it seems to be pieces that, yeah, that tap into some source of frustration related to these issues that it's a lot of times I get emails that are like, you have named the thing I've been trying to put into words, you know, Hmm. which like this is not easy to do all the time. Like, let me just sit around and like. Put into words the thing that everyone's struggling with, but when I can land on it, that that definitely drives a lot of. Um, and again, I think it comes back to knowing your readers really well and knowing what they need and what they're struggling with. Um, so yeah, that's that's been some of the biggest bringing in new people. Well, I th- you know we we've kind of we've covered a lot. I totally want to talk about what we've been reading, but before we do. Let's just sort of um, just take a sec and think about for someone who is, let's first, let's talk about someone who wants to start a brand spanking new Substack around their, I'm just going to go with nonfiction Mm -hmm. topic, um, because that's really what we're talking about here. So if you were talking to somebody who was about to to throw all in for a new nonfiction substack about their deeply held passion around anything, coffee, what are some things that you might say to them to get help them get started? Um, So really think about I think what a, mis- a common mistake I say, and I feel like I've said this a few times, so apologize for being repetitive, but a common mistake I see is people thinking, I have a lot to say about this topic and people are going to want to read it and not thinking enough about who is my reader and what do they want from me and really thinking of it like almost more in a customer service kind of relationship mm-hmm. mode, you know, that this isn't just like your witty musings and essays about whatever, it is you building a community and you understanding who is going to care about this and what they care about. So really doing that work on who your reader is. Um, and that's maybe hard when you're like, but I have five readers and two of them are my parents, you know, <laughs> like I get that. But like thinking about if this is the topic you really care about, so you're the reader, like, okay, what are the problems you have? What are the questions you have? Like, you know, Why do you love the people that you already read? Exactly. On this. Exactly. You know, what is the thing that they um, did that brought you to them? What are you most excited to see when they produce it? And I, I think what's something I think is interesting. You just said, don't let me repeat myself. But what is really interesting about this is when it is a person you love on a topic you're interested in, you don't care. Yeah, that's true. That's I true. I will listen to... Um, I will listen to... 
um, Cal Newport talk about deep work. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. And he can say the same things, and that's fine. I will listen to Gretchen Rubin talk about the four tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. all. That's all good. I will listen to you talk about you know yeah. why you, you you know why you just you know why but I just don't want to be fat is still a reflection of diet culture right. because right. you know that's you're interesting on that you are passionate about it um, and it's your thing and I want to hear it and yeah no that's so, a great point yeah so so really understanding that. Um, and then also definitely understanding who else is doing this work, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, another thing that has helped grow the newsletter is doing the podcast along with it. Not everyone needs to do a podcast, but, um, because I'm having conversations with other people in the world of that I'm writing about, that's both great because I'm able to, you know, center their work and celebrate their work, but also they're then engaging in my work and sharing the episode with their communities or whatever. Um, but it's so it's like both practically useful, but I also think it's important because whatever your topic is, there probably are lots of people who've been doing great work in that space for a long time. And knowing that and respecting that and learning from those people is so looking at both of the communities here the community that is already composed of experts and educators yes and then the community of people who are looking for those experts and educators and making yourself a part of both of those communities yeah Yeah. And so then a great thing is, you know, it'll all start to sort of synergize because a reader will say to me, okay, I really love what you're doing, but what do I do for my neurodivergent child? I don't know anything about, you know, neurodivergency and diet culture. You can just be like, let me go get that expert because I don't know either. That's not my area at all. But Mm -hmm. here's Noreen Hunani, who's an incredible dietitian who specializes in neurodivergency, and we can talk about it. So then you can kind of connect it all together. And that's super satisfying. Yeah. I love that. And do we think anything different for people who are sub who are transferring an existing list and interest into Substack? I mean, one thing that I say to people who want to do that is you don't actually have to tell your readers they probably won't notice. Yeah, true, true. I don't think anyone cared when I left Tiny Letter and went to Substack. Um, no, your more, existing people yeah. might notice a small change in format. Right. And you can be it. like, hey, it looks cool because I made a little change. Great. And yeah, yeah, I think you don't have to overthink that transition very much. Um, and, you know, like, I I think it's possible to do a lot of this even if you're not on Substack. I do, you know, Substack is not a perfect company by any means. I have criticisms no. of yeah, yeah, yeah. various things they're doing, but I do think they are the most writer-centric newsletter company at the moment. They're kind of creating that model. I think there's going to be a lot of companies sort of mimicking what they do, and then we may all have more options and can shop mm-hmm. around. But for now, Substack has the best tools, the sort of most seamless setup in terms of infrastructure, accepting payments, all that stuff's very easy there. Um, so I find it, I have found it very helpful. Like their support team is good when you're sort of trying to figure out, can I do this feature, the technical mm-hmm. feature? You know, they're they're very good about all of that. Um, and yeah, and they take 10%, which is certainly not nothing, but um given how much I see them contributing directly to the growth of my audience feels earned at this point. Um, yeah, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And 
in terms of, well, we've already talked about uh, whether you want to set up a paywall and conversion. When you first did that, when you decided to make that move, um, how did you announce it to your readers? I did do a pretty big announcement, and that was on Substack's advice. They Their advice typically has been to wait until your list is fairly big to do it, because that uh, that launch of like, I'm turning on paid subscriptions, will get some buzz and you'll get like a big influx of subscribers, you know, right with that announcement. So you kind of want to like, do that announcement when you have a pot to draw from. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that means while you're building the list, you're working for free that whole time. So I have friends who've turned on subscriptions from the beginning, even with tiny lists, and are just growing and letting the paid. So they're at least making some money as it goes along. And I don't think that's wrong. I mean, I definitely understand. If I hadn't had my book advance, I probably would have done it way sooner because I'm not going to just keep working for free um, for, you know, endless amounts of time trying to build up a list. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a complicated piece about it. But I will say when your list is smaller, it is harder to get to that 10% conversion rate. I didn't get to the 10% conversion rate until I was over 10,000 subscribers on the list. Mm -hmm. And it seems to just be something to do with like momentum of how, you know, like getting 10% of 500 people to convert is somehow harder than getting 10% of 15,000 people. I don't really know why, but I was at like, you know, when the list was 5,000 people, it was like 5% were converting and we were like stuck there for a while. So there's some some alchemy to that. I don't totally understand. (laughs) Um, So you just have to know if you turn on subscriptions sooner, it will grow slowly. And that may be frustrating for a bit. Right. But you're earning something as opposed to nothing while you build your list. It will be interesting to talk to you after your book launch. (laughs) Because the question of how Substack readers convert to book readers is still sort of an open one. Well, I don't have numbers yet, obviously, because the book is not officially out yet. But I will say we did a signed pre-orders campaign with my local independent bookstore that was pretty much promoted exclusively through my Substack. I mean, I mentioned it on Instagram as well, but for sure Substack was where they came from. Um, and I am very proud that I set a record for them on pre-orders. Yay! Including beating Michelle Obama's record for them. <gasps> but like, I mean, for them, know, for them, for them, in their bookstore. For I them. understand. But that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, that's so fantastic. So that was really fun. Yesterday morning, I was there signing all the books and it was like super, you know, so that was, so I know that my readers showed up in that sense. And of course, I've given them all the other pre-order links and I don't have numbers yet on right, everyone but, else. But, but, you know, it was really yeah, that nice. That is a great sign. That's yeah. my Magnificent. It was lovely. It was lovely. They were thrilled. It was great for an independent bookstore to get those sales. And um yeah, I was like, oh, good job, burnt toast. Like, thank you. <laughs> you know, so loyal yeah. Substack readers. Uh yeah, score for the loyal Substack. I mean, the readers. way I, think, I love it. I think about it as like if someone's willing to pay five dollars a month for your newsletter, they probably have twenty-five dollars for your book one time, you know? Like they're already investing in your work. They're not gonna be like well, I already pay you that $5 a month, so I don't think I want to read your book as well. Like that's, I think I think once they're in, they're in, you know? Yeah, well, you'd hope so. I mean, yeah. going to get a book is just one extra step. Right, right. I don't so, know. There is that, but it seems like a lot of them have felt like, you know, they've been involved in the process. They're excited to see it. They're, you know, mm-hmm. 
It definitely. Yeah. That's yeah. great. So that's we'll fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick pause and then we can talk about what we've been reading. Great. I can look at my Goodreads and remember what I've been reading. <laughs> Writers, I know you love Serena Bowen, but have you read Serena Bowen? If you haven't, you should. First off, because her books are killer fun, and secondly, because every one is a masterclass in pacing, characterization, and plot. And if you think plotting romance is easy because, quote, we know what's going to happen, unquote, then call me again after you've tried it. Her latest is The New Guy, but if you're new to her world, I strongly recommend Brooklyn Air. Bet you can't stop with just one. Find out more at serenabowen.com. Okay, Virginia, we always love it when our guests go first. So what have you been reading and loving lately? Okay, so for nonfiction, I have to shout out Sarah Louise Peterson's Momfluenced, um, which is my, she and I are book birthday twins. She's launching the same day as Fat Talk. So we've been, you know, hand-holding each other through the roller coaster of book launching. But it is just... Such a fascinating exploration of the world of influencers and motherhood um, and really like looking at how we are all as moms asked to perform our motherhood in different ways on public stages and then looking at Instagram and, you know, it's like smart and thoughtful and a little gossipy and funny. And Sarah is a very funny writer and there's a lot of personal stuff in it. So that's Momfluenced. Encourage everyone to check out. And then two novels I just read on vacation that I were like perfect vacation reads. Um, one was More Than You'll Ever Know by Katie Gutierrez. This was like pretty big. I think it's been out for a while. And it's about a, a true crime writer who um, who's like probably like a young, sort of young struggling journalist, true crime writer, who stumbles upon the story of this woman who had two husbands and one of them gets murdered and she then connects with the woman and wants to tell her story because the world has only heard, you know, the headline version of it. And so their relationship and it's set in Texas in a border town and it's like kind of goes back and forth between Texas and Mexico City and their relationship is fascinating and like, you know, there's so if you like true crime, if you like sort of intriguing, absorbing, um, you know, intergenerational family dramas. Yeah, it was a really good one. So then the second novel is How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water by Angie Cruz, which is just absolutely magnificent. Like, oh my goodness. Um, So it is told in first person. It is um, this... I'm going to blank on the character's name because I'm terrible at characters' names always. Um, She is a Latina Dominican immigrant living in Harlem, and she is being interviewed by a caseworker for, I think, like welfare or some kind of financial support job training, and she's telling her life story. And so the whole book is just her conversations. It's like this 12 sessions of meeting with this caseworker and telling her life story. And so it's all very, like, you know, it's very spare. It's like just what she's telling you about her life. Um, but you really understand this whole community of neighbors living in poverty, dealing with crime and drugs and all of this and racism. And it's beautiful and heart-wrenching. And yeah, just like the kind of writing you just keep thinking about afterwards. I have been in a bit of a, a reading slump. I don't know. Everything just feels very, very 
stressful mm-hmm. to to read. So I haven't. I've been sort of you know picking it up and putting it down, picking it up and putting it down. But um, one thing that I have really been enjoying lately, and I am speaking very slowly in the hope that the titles will come to me. Okay, I got it. Uh, <laughs> it did. It did. It came. I read a book called Dear Committee Members. Ooh. It's old, which is to say, I think it's 2016, right, right. which is really not ancient. that old. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> ancient. But, um, and I wrote about it in my Substack not too long ago. So it is a novel told entirely in letters of recommendation from an academic English professor. And let's just say his idea of a letter of recommendation is A, really, really funny, and B, um, you know, he has a lot of trouble sticking to the point. Um, And during the course of it, you get the whole history of his time at a very, very famous and influential MFA program, and sort of how everyone that was in that with him came out of it. His ex-wife, his ex-girlfriend, um, uh, his students, the experience of being sort of a, a modern writing student and a modern writing professor, um, and it's and yet you know it's, it's got all this stuff in it, all contained with these in these letters, and it's really short. That's so. That's like Angie Cruz too. I am just amazed as someone who is chronically over her word counts. I am blown away. When authors can like tell a story in such a like spare format like that, like it just blows my mind. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. No. Not my special gift, no. but I loved Dear Committee Members. It was really fun. I'm so glad to have been given the recommendation. So, um, yeah, that was a success for me lately. Well, this has been fantastic. Successes for you all, listeners, I guarantee are subscribe to Virginia's Burnt Toast Substack, which the note for that in subs- in our show notes, because we're in Substack, we'll have like a big frame around it because <laughs> Substack is friendly that way. Yeah, they are. Grab yourself a copy of Fat Talk if you are uh, parenting anyone or maybe parenting yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you might you might need it. And also check out Virginia's podcast. I really, really enjoy it. It is also called Burnt Toast. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's good stuff. Amazing. Thank you, KJ. This was awesome. Thank you. And thank you for putting up with my, um, I don't know why I'm just such a, such a, I'm all over the place today. I mean, it's just the way I am. It's where my brain is. So I just felt very, felt very right at home. Or isn't. Okay. And I enjoyed the cat cameo. I was midpoint and didn't get to gush over how cute she was enough. Yeah. So listeners, the purring partway through this was, um, yeah, we, we had a we had a small guest star. Sorry about that. She doesn't come very often. So no, it was wonderful. I was very away. happy okay. to see her. I have to say the I have to say the the final words of every podcast. Besides, come and follow us and support us and all of the other joyful things. But the most important thing is keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.
save, pause, stop, stop. Thank you.